This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to a New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host, Yorgos Yanakopoulos. Today, I'm delighted to, to host uh, Ariela Zulai. Ariela is a theorist, curator, filmmaker, and, and she's uh, currently teaching political thought and visual culture at Brown University. Uh, well, for the benefit of our audience, Ariela, I would give you, I'd like you to, to uh, uh, say a few words of introduction about yourself and your work. Yeah, so thank you for inviting me. I am happy to be here and to talk with you about my new work in the context of uh, my work in general. So I'm working in between two disciplines. Uh, one is political theory. The other is, let's say, uh, media studies or photography studies or visual culture. And uh, what I'm trying to do is to work across these, these disciplines and to ask questions uh, from a commitment to non-imperial thinking, uh, questions that challenge actually the foundations of these two disciplines. Uh, so just to give you a broad context of my work, in the last, uh, I don't know, decade or decade and a half, I uh, wrote you things about uh, photography, but it is not in the sense of the history of photography or theory of photography in a narrow sense, but through photography, I'm trying uh, to ask uh, numerous questions about the way that we share the world together. Uh, so, for example, in the civil contract of photography a few years ago, a few years, I think it's almost two decades or one decade and a half. Um, what I try to do is rather than just understanding photography as a productive uh, uh, practice, that produces photographs, I change the focus onto the event of photography, the moment of encounter between the photographer, photographed persons, and uh, those who then uh, consume them, look at them, view them. Um, and rather than uh, accepting this kind of uh, uh, recognition of the photographer as the initiator of the event of photography, I try to look at different moments when the uh, event of photography is initiated by the photographed persons or the way that spectators initiate the event rather than the photograph uh, itself. And what I try to do is to assume a kind of uh, contract, a civil contract, between the users of photography because I assume that photography in itself was a very violent practice. And uh, it's a, I assume it as a very violent practice because someone holds a camera and appropriate the image to himself and then can do with the image uh, whatever they like. 
So I try to look at the history of photography and to provide a certain kind of potential history. I didn't use the term yet of potential history, but trying to understand how the event uh, cannot be appropriated by one side, which is the photographer. And hence, I tried to uh, uh, reflect on the way, the different ways that photograph persons participate in the situation. Right. Great. Uh, th thank you. And indeed, uh, this book that we're talking about today, which is called uh, the full title is Potential History, Unlearning Imperialism, is in some ways a continuation, as I take it, of your uh, previous work on photography, but expanding it, but you're expanding your scope in, um, in other fields as well. Uh, so I was wondering, you, you, you write in the introduction of the book, uh, this book project, Potential History, culminates almost a decade, decade of research. So uh, as a way to start talking about the book, I wanted to ask you, what was it that led you to this project? And, and uh, was it some form of evolution from your previous writings on the history of photography and visual culture? So the answer would be yes and no. It's a continuation, but it's a departure. So maybe I'll try to say a few words about this. But if you allow me, I would like to say a few words more about the previous book in order to uh, differentiate them and to create a continuity. So I think that in the civil contract of photography, I have already written a potential history of photography, but what I was able to understand then as a potential history of photography, what I try to do is rather than understanding photography, as I said, as something that is initiated by the photographer, it was a community or different participants, and it was also a uh, potential history of uh, the notion of citizenship, rather than recognizing the state as the apparatus that uh, should define the way that we share the world with other people with whom we are governed, I try to understand the political space as a space that is shared by those who are recognized as citizens and those who are not recognized and are non-citizens. And by that, I started also to provide a certain type of potential history of uh, citizenship. And I think that when it comes to this book, new book on potential history, and I think that this is why it took me uh, one decade to, uh, to work on it, to complete the research and to complete the, the writing, uh, in potential history, it is an attempt to think uh, in a wider way uh, about 500 years of imperialism. So it is a potential history of imperialism in the sense that rather than accepting the way that imperial practices uh, uh, and invites us or compels us to think uh, about uh, whatever, whatever was achieved by violence as a fait accompli, I'm trying to uh, go back to those moments of violence and say that everything that was achieved there is reversible. Uh, saying it differently, if imperialism is built, you know, like a building in uh, one floor on top of on the other, for example, destroying Palestine and uh, saying that Palestine is gone and on top of Palestine you have Israel, and from the moment when you have Israel, so you have Israeli art with its history, you have Israeli politics with its history, uh, and you cannot even think any longer about the fact that Palestine is not the other of Israel elsewhere, but Palestine is in the same place. So potentializing history is going to those moments of violence, like 1492, 
in the global context, like uh, 1948 in the context of Palestine, like 1830 in the context of Algeria, and trying to uh, uh, account for the potentialities that were actually smashed by uh, imperial procedures and imperial histories. So in uh, a sense, the book really challenges what I didn't do in such a direct way in my previous work, challenges the discipline or the practice of history and actually show its complicity with the world that was shaped by imperialism. Right. Uh, well, yeah, in fact, we'll talk about that in a second. Before we move on, I just wanted to clarify one thing about y- your use of the term potential. Uh, it seems uh, in, you know, what you call potential history, it seems to me there, uh, the word may have two meanings. One is obviously a contingent future, a future that one cannot foresee in different ways. Uh, but also uh, potential the, the term uh, has a, a sense a teleology as well. Realize your potential. You know, I, I I would assume that the way you understand potential history would be to focus on contingency and how we shape our own alternative futures. I don't know if I'm getting this right or or if there's anything more you want to say about the term potential. Yeah, no, you're getting it completely right. But let me just add one thing. For example, about the future, the possible futures. So what matters is not to look now for possible futures in a sense that we will come up with new inventions, how to impose on people's life new formations. The idea is to go back, to rewind history and uh, actualize potential futures that were at any different moment. So for example, in the context of uh, Palestine, which I have just mentioned, uh, it would be to go back to the promises of the generation of the great uh, great parents uh, of Jews and Arabs that promised to themselves that they will uh, preserve, they will protect the shared world against those nationalists and especially the na- Jewish nationalists that uh, came up with this project of destroying Palestine. So what I'm trying to account for in the book, and I also did a film about it, Civil Alliances, is to look at the moment in 47 when the UN resolution for the partitioning of Palestine was uh, challenged and opposed not only by Palestinians, as history uh, and historians narrate it, but it was opposed also by the Jews. And I'm trying to locate hundreds of civil alliances between Jews and Palestinians in different locations all around uh, the country. But this will lead me to uh, give you another meaning of potential history. And this is why the book engages with different key terms in political theory, or not only in political theory, for example, sovereignty, for example, human rights, uh, for example, um, art. If you take the term out and you see how much uh, how much of the material world of different people were destroyed and best samples were appropriated and plundered into Western museums, and you see that all of them became under this umbrella of the term out, you have to question the term out. How come that such term can host so much violence? and uh, translate all the objects that carries this, uh, this violence or that they were extracted through violence, uh, the violence is removed 
removed from them and they are being viewed by spectators in the museum as works of art. So the work that I'm trying to do is to see how the term art came to be and how much violence was involved in this term. And in this sense, rather than accepting that museums were there and objects from all around the world uh, were uh, 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 sent to these museums, I'm trying to reverse the perspective and to show that so much violence was exercised against people in different countries, mainly Africa, the Middle East, India. So much violence was exercised against them and their uh, uh, culture was uh, plundered. We have to understand museums as the outcome of plunder rather than the other way around, museums as kind of neutral vessels that just uh, 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 receive in a passive way objects that are coming into their doors. So, um, and the same, for example, for human rights, rather than accepting the uh, way that the concept of human rights is defined in its connection to document-based culture, as if human rights are documents, they are papers, they are proclamations, they are uh, 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 declaration of uh, rights of the men and citizen or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I'm trying to locate rights in objects, rights in environment, and then look at rights as something that uh, a community shares rather than looking at rights as something that belongs to individual and is given or taken by state apparatuses. Right. Well, a lot to unpack there. In fact, let's begin, as you begin the book, talking about, as you mentioned earlier, museums and archives. Uh, uh, in, in what you said, previously said about the museums, I was wondering if you could, like, in what way would your account differ from the workings of institutional critique and, and calls to make the Western museums and their visitors uh, more accountable to the injustices inflicted by colonialism. And as you know, that is a story from the 60s onwards in the Western Museums. So uh, how would you differentiate what you're doing from, you know, what what even an academic discipline like the, his, the critical history of art is doing with institutional critique? So, you know, the challenge is not always necessarily to show how do a uh, work differs. You know, I have in a book my critique, let's say, of the way that as scholars we are interpolated all the time to do new work, and this actually would fragment our possibility to imagine beyond a world beyond imperialism and beyond racial capitalism. So after saying that, I would like now to say what I think differentiates uh, uh, some of what I'm doing from others, but on the other hand, ties me very uh, uh, closely to other people who are doing anti-imperial or anti-racial capitalist uh, work. So I think that much of the uh, uh, institution critique uh, uh, left behind the context of 500 years of imperialism. It was the critique of institutions, but assuming that these institu institutions exist in a way, or uh, forgetting their uh, uh, imperial crimes. And uh, also forgetting the way that uh, certain uh, keywords in our uh, political uh, thinking uh, in itself is uh, emblems of imperial violence. For example, uh, the fact that the entire discourse of human rights relies on uh, uh, documents of freedoms or documents of rights and uh, embraces uh, 
some of its milestones in the French Revolution, which was actually to uh, reassert, uh, uh, reaffirm uh, its colonies and slavery, or the American Revolution, which gave birth to uh, uh, a slave state, or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 that was achieved through so much violence of destroying people's imaginary, uh, uh, the imperial allies, the imperial actors who gave us the Universal Declaration of Human Rights actually smashed, you know, and killed and massacred uh, people all around the world. Just think about the end of World War II that ended with massacres in Senegal, massacres in Algeria, the rape of German women, all these catastrophes that enabled them to give rights. So, you know, unlike the way, for example, not unlike, but let's say alongside uh, Hannah Arendt's argument about the right to have rights, what I'm trying to do is rather than uh, looking at those who were denied rights as the focus of, imper- of uh, uh, the discourse of rights, I'm looking at those who uh, acquired to themselves or appropriated the right to give rights to others. And I think that when it comes to the discourse of rights, we have also to account for imperial rights, not only the rights that we associate with rights that are being given to people. Because all this idea that you give rights to people uh, uh, is tied to these imperial rights of people who put themselves in the position that they have the right to destroy other people's worlds and to uh, uh, give them rights. So the right to give right is the uh, crucial, <clears throat> or <clears throat> sorry, let's say it's at the heart of the imperial project. So what I'm trying to do is not only uh, institutional critique, but to criticize or to challenge the foundations of the key terms that we are using, even the term of uh, institution, mm-hmm. or even the term critique, that is critique that was uh, generated within a very particular discourse. Uh, without accounting, for example, for 500 years of uh, 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 opposition to institutions. Because in all those places that were uh, uh, conquered, uh, the colonized people, they revolted against the imposition of those institutions. But this uh, institutional critique with quotation mark was never accounted for in the tradition of institutional critique. So what I'm trying to do is to align my work with 500 years of opposition to those institutions and trying to challenge their foundation. I hope it gives you uh, an answer. It's a very long answer, but I cannot take shortcuts. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Indeed, indeed. We will unpack your your take on human rights a bit further. Uh, uh, For now, I wanted to move from the museum to the archive. And, and, and here, uh, um, uh, you know, you, you have many polemical things and a particular stance about the archive and how we understand the archive. Just to quote from you, the archive does not preserve documents as much as it creates documents as objects of pre- preservation. 
That's a quote from the book. And I wanted to, to, to prod a bit more your thinking of the archive by also asking you to reflect on uh, your experience using, uh, for instance, uh, or not using rather in the context of the book, uh, photographs from the International Committee of the Red Cross Archives and, and how uh, you understand the archive in the book and also your experiences with archives. Yeah, so uh, yeah. So thank you for raising the question of the archive. It's really uh, fundamental, I think, for, uh, in the book. Uh, and uh, thank you also for bringing this quotation because, you know, when we speak about archives, we have different... Uh, uh, different but very common imaginaries that bring us to look at those papers that are stores in boxes and in drawers and white gloves. And, you know, all the profanalia that is related with uh, 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 how do we treat documents with a certain uh, sacredness, with a certain respect, in a way that we feel our freedom to interpret them. But what we do not think when we go to the archive is about the production of these image, of these documents. So rather than having this imaginary of you know very tedious ants who are uh, cataloging documents and treating them with uh, care, uh, prudence and care with gloves, etc., I'm looking at the military when they come to different places, destroy uh, entire environments, and go back with piles of documents. I'm looking at moment that are called, you know, slave auction, but are actually uh, uh, scenes of uh, kidnapping of people and trafficking in bodies. And I'm looking at the archivist in these scenes, the guy who holds the paper that says the price of the people or that says uh, that this person or that person that was kidnapped from now on will be recognized as a slave. And we as scholars, when we go to the archive, we are expected to look for documents of uh, slavery or to look for documents uh, through which we can learn about slaves. So I'm saying, okay, let's step back a little bit. Rather than associate the archive with the documents that are already there, let's see how these documents are being produced. And then I'm speaking about the archive not only as an institution in which there are documents, but I'm speaking about uh, imperialism as a particular type of violence that is documents-based. There is no one type of violence uh, uh, exercised by imperialism for which we don't have documents. So we have to treat documents as emblems of uh, violence. And this is what I'm trying to do. So I'm speaking about the archive as the institution, the archive as archival violence, which is the way that, you know, uh, coming to your question about the uh, archive of the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross. I'm looking at an image of a Palestinian in uh, June 1948, very close to where the state of Israel will uh, draw its border. And this Palestinian guy who is, I don't know, in his 60s or maybe even 70s, he decides that he doesn't want to continue with the caravan of expellees that the uh, uh, Jewish state, we're already speaking about the Jewish state, uh, one or two months after its creation, they are expelling uh, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians and he crouches, he holds his cane and he says, I don't move, I stay put, this is my homeland. So I'm looking at him and I'm looking at how he refuses 
to become the embodiment of the category of the refugee. So this is for me imperial violence, expelling Palestinians from their homeland and calling them disoperation, either repatriation, even though they are being expelled, or calling the people who are being expelled refugees is actually exercising uh, archival violence. Why archival violence? Because from the moment when this guy who crouches and doesn't want to walk farther, but from the moment more violence will be exercised against him and he will be pushed a few meters forward and will be pushed a few moments later in time, he will become refugee. What does it mean, refugee? He will embody this archival uh, category. So the archive is not only documents, the archive is the violence that transforms people into refugees, slaves, undocumented people, etc. Mm-hmm. Very good. And and and, and when, uh, however, when the archive, when that picture, you know, is documented and catalogued and everything, then there are legal regimes there, right? And you talk about in the book about how you were not able to use this photograph uh, simply because of the caption that the photograph that, that that you were somehow obliged to carry with the photograph. Sorry, can you repeat? Yes, I, I, I I'm I'm saying that that uh, the photograph uh, that you mentioned. It's also it also has become a document, and uh, you talk in the book about how uh, you weren't uh, able, due to legal restrictions, to use the photograph um, as a matter as a means to uh, uh, b- because of the caption that you were uh, you had to carry with you. Yeah, so uh, you know, institutions continue to exercise the violence that was exercised when the documents. Uh, uh, were produced in order to be integrated in the archive. So the uh, Red Cross, for example, they were part of the international organizations that assisted, that attended the expulsion of Palestinians. They were there in a kind of neutral way. They observed, but they provided terms. And in their archive, the photographs that I viewed uh, uh, describes this violence of expansion as repatriation. The, their archive didn't let me show these images if I will append my way to relate to these images. Uh, they wanted me to, if I want to use these photographs, to use it only with their caption. And their caption says that this Palestinian who is being expelled is a prisoner of war. And I know that he is not a prisoner of war. It says that this is repatriation. I know that this is not repatriation because he is being deported. And I know that he, there, are, there are no Jewish zones and Arab zones in such a neutral way as they are pretending in the caption. So the fact that in the archive, those images stay for decades with these captions and every new scholar is invited to... Uh, 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 give his own or your own interpretation to the photograph, but we are not allowed to change substantially the caption and to reinscribe it in the archive, shows, shows you how violence is being reproduced uh, by the archive. Let me give you an example from a different context, uh, which is, uh, I think, uh, uh, crucial uh, and uh, illustrated in a very uh, concise way. There is a series of uh, daguerreotypes that were taken in 1850 uh, by a racist who founded the Harvard uh, Science School. 
uh, Agassiz, and he took photographs of people who were kidnapped from Africa and were enslaved in the South. And these daguerreotypes were kept in the Peabody Museum at Harvard University for uh, uh, many, many years since they were taken in 1850. And the descendant of one of the photographed persons tracked down her lineage uh, to uh, Renty Taylor, one of the enslaved, and she sued archive uh, because she wants the, uh, the image back because the image was uh, 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 produced under violence and is kept under violence by Harvard. And what she claims is that her great-great-grandfather, uh, Renty Taylor, is enslaved by Harvard for 169 years, which means from the moment when the daguerreotype was seized from him. Uh, what she claims uh, in her lawsuit is uh, that after uh, slavery was abolished in the U.S. Uh, uh, in the 60s of the 19th century, Harvard continued to hold uh, uh, Renty Taylor as a slave 169 years since then. So what she's actually saying is that this is not a daguerreotype, which means a precious art object or a precious document. This is my great-great-great-father. This is what she's saying, and hence uh, I uh, should have this image. So not only she claims the restitution of this image, she actually undermines the foundation or the legal basis for Harvard to claim that they are the owner of this image. And this is crucial because here also what we have is the way that the understanding what photography is uh, was uh, 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 defined or the notion of photography was shaped by, you know, slaveholders, by other imperial actors who were allowed, who allowed themselves to expropriate this, let's say, visual wealth from people that they used as raw material to create uh, our, you know, photographic archives or our document archives. So rather than looking at the discrete images or discrete documents, I'm looking at photography and uh, on uh, this uh, paper culture as uh, 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 a practice of extraction. And if we speak about a practice of extraction, we have to understand that this is a kind of primitive accumulation on the basis of which the uh, 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 the uh, exploitation of uh, p- former colonized people can continue, it can be reproduced. Uh, this leads me to talk a bit about, before I, I'll turn to human rights in the end, uh, uh, but to talk about the strategies of resistance um, to imperialism, the way you describe it. And uh, after every chapter, you insert a small imagine going on strike section. Um, yeah. Uh, and then you talk about the museum workers, historians, photographers, those governed. So would you want to elaborate a bit more on, on, on why do you insert these bits and why this, this going on strike matters so much for, uh, for what you're proposing? Because, you know, imperialism, as I said earlier, pushes us to believe that uh, uh, its violence is irreversible, that we have to go forward, that we have to interpret more and more and more. And actually, what do we do in our interpretation? We interpret, you know, uh, what should be abolished. So uh, I think that rather than thinking about ourselves as scholars or as practitioners of all sorts, 
as if we have all the time to produce new material and to produce new more and more and more and more and more. What I'm saying is that we have the right to use our power to withdraw from this productive uh, activity. We have the right to go on strike. We have the right to say, no, for certain things, we don't have to produce more documents or to read more documents in order to call for uh, the abolition of uh, certain state apparatuses or certain colonial measures uh, or to achieve reparations. For example, why do we need another archival documents to justify reparations for slavery? We know how atrocious was slavery, right? We don't need another document. So there are certain moments or certain topics in relation to which we can exercise our withdrawal from uh, labor rather than uh, producing more labor that actually create more wealth for all these, uh, you know, corporations. Because archives became corporations, became or maybe were to begin with museums the same. So I think that we have to reconsider our contribution to those institutions and go on strike on different levels for different topics um, and uh, with uh, non-imperial imagination. Uh, on that, exactly. Moving a bit on to, to the, the, the last part of your book deals with, uh, as you hinted earlier, uh, uh, concepts of, uh, that have been very important in political theory and not only uh, sovereignty, human rights, etc. Uh, uh, you talk about non-imperial rights, non-imperial sovereign formations, and you also mention uh, the keyword worldly sovereign uh, as a different, uh, as it were, uh, category than the imperial sovereignty. So I wondered if you could elaborate a bit more, you've done it earlier as well, on, on these terms, and, 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 and how would you see worldly sovereignty playing out? So, you know, one of the, uh, another aspect of imperial violence is to uh, create throughout, you know, uh, centuries, I would say, create certain uh, keywords as transcendental categories. For example, sovereignty. When we say sovereignty today, when we have 200 uh, 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 sovereign with quotation mark nation states in the world, we associate sovereignty with certain state apparatuses. We associate sovereignty with the body of uh, body politic of citizens. We associate sovereignty with borders. But this was not the only way that sovereignty was exercised by people. And wherever we recognize this type of sovereignty, we know that there were several different other modalities of sovereignty that are incommensurable with this type of sovereignty. So what I'm trying to do is to question the transcendental uh, uh, status of our notion of sovereignty, again, the same for human rights, the same for art, etc., and to look at other formations of sovereignty. So uh, let's go back to uh, Palestine, because we already spent some time on it, so I think that we can already draw on some of uh, what we said about Palestine. So uh, in '48, when the Jews, the Jewish militia, the Jewish uh, 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 violent militia, uh, are determined to destroy Palestine. What do they destroy? They destroy other worldly formations of sovereignty because there were different, you know, Palestine was under the British mandate, but the British mandate, you know, was limited. It didn't take care 
of everything, of the daily life of people who live there. There were different modalities of uh, sovereignty. One of them that I'm trying to focus on in relation to Palestine, for example, is the way that among the Jewish and Arab localities all around the countries, there were, you know, uh, 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 different modalities of exchange, different modalities of addressing local conflicts, different modalities of uh, uh, getting to understanding uh, between the communities and different types of exchange or transactions that they had among themselves. And all these were embedded in the environment, in their habits, in their modalities of uh, mutual uh, hospitality and mutual aid. And um, when the Jewish uh, uh, militia, violent militia, uh, destroyed Palestine, they wanted to destroy all of this. This is why they destroyed, you know, entire, for example, neighborhoods in Haifa, because Haifa was a mixed city. So while you destroy, you know, 500 uh, uh, buildings in Haifa, in the center of Haifa, you destroy the rights of people in them. And when I'm speaking about the rights of people in them, I'm not speaking about the property right that for which you will go to the archive and you will see that uh, each building belongs to a, an individual. I'm speaking about the rights that uh, people share together when they uh, roam around in their environment they recognize themselves. They are being recognized by others. This is part of what creates their worldly sovereignty. And this is true, you know, everywhere. When with all this uh, 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 British and not only British tradition of punitive expedition, what did they do? They went to Benin and they destroyed Benin. They destroyed Benin and they plundered the bronze from Benin and they transformed them into works of art for us to view in museums. But what does it mean that they destroyed Benin? Uh, some of, you know, uh, uh, the uh, bronze were in the palace, but many other objects that they plundered, they were in, uh, you know, uh, encrusted in buildings. And buildings uh, uh, were, you know, shrines of rights. What do I mean by rights? It was not only a private property. There were, you know, the uh, uh, remains of their ancestors there. The house was something that was uh, transmitted uh, across generations. So there were different modalities of rights on the basis of which there were different modalities of sovereignty. All this was destroyed in order to make room for the imposition of archives, museum, public plaza, in which you can have some protests, uh, but protest against what? Against the state apparatuses. So the destruction of cultures was the destruction of worldly sovereignty in order to impose, like you write on a white paper, to impose this grammar, this imperial grammar of sovereignty. Uh, so rather than, you know, imagining how, you know, Palestine will be another nation state with sovereignty one day, which I don't think will exist, I'm trying to look at the worldly sovereignty that is there. And it was but, there and should be renewed. Indeed. Carrying on with the Palestine example, you know, Palestinians today in, in human rights discourse have been, uh, you know, uh, everyone talks about the, the human rights of Palestinians. And, and in the book, in the final chapter, you talk about unlearning human rights. So um, 
so I, w- I was wondering if you could reflect a bit more on, on, on the language of human rights today and, 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 and the, the way it's been used in the Palestinian case and what would be the problem with this language. Yeah, so, you know, speaking about the human rights of Palestinians is, you know, like a, like a joke. I mean, what are the human rights of Palestinians? To improve them from a tent to uh, a temporary building? They have other rights that are not human rights, that are, were not part of the imperial imaginary. Their right to be back in their homeland. So human rights is not a reply to this. Human rights try to bypass the essential rights of Palestinians to get back, you know, to their homeland. So I think that we have to unlearn human rights because human rights are trying, uh, are based on this idea that imperial actors give rights to uh, a people from whom they actually uh, took everything and denied uh, their right to have rights in their worldly uh, sovereignty. So we cannot accept this, you know, very narrow understanding of human rights, which is uh, 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 the denial or the rejection of uh, uh, the debt that uh, imperial actors and imperial uh, powers, the debt that they owe to these people. The fact that there were no reparations for our slavery, there was no reparations for uh, uh, years of colonization, this is due to the imposition of the discourse of human rights, which uh, 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 is not an attempt to repair the world, but is an attempt to reproduce the imbalance of power between imperial actors and those who are made uh, disposable people. Indeed, at the end of the book, you talk about reparations and uh, as a strategy, uh, uh, as a non-imperial strategy in many ways, what is reparations seen as also a means to deliver justice? Are you interested in, in that concept of justice and how to... Uh, uh, so, and I, was, I just wanted to prod you thinking a bit more about reparations and if you plan to do a bit more uh, work on that or, or see that... Uh, 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 from another dimension as well. Yeah, I think that reparations are indispensable. Uh, return is indispensable. Whatever should be done to stop the imperial violence and to repair the world. So I'm speaking about reparations not only in the sense of, uh, uh, in a monet- monetary sense, but also are tied to the, uh, the idea that we have to repair the world because the world cannot go on like that forever. Uh, And you cannot uh, uh, think uh, about the fact that everything that was taken from people, they will forever be silent about this. So imperialism is based on the idea that the people will die and their children will forget or will not know. But this is not true. Children's and great children's are reclaiming the rights that were denied to their parents. And in relation, for example, to Palestine, when I'm working on these civil alliances between Jews and Palestinians in 47, 48, what I'm saying is that uh, uh, I uh, deny the right of those who created the state to impose this future on me and on Palestinians. I deny their right to tell us forever that the Jews, uh, the Jewish supremacy should reign in uh, Palestine. So we, uh, the idea of uh, potential history or the idea of renewing rights that were uh, denied or were smashed or were replaced by this empty 
or all our notion of human rights, the idea is that we have a right to claim uh, our rights in retrospect, or let's say even in retro-prospect, which means going back to this moment when uh, promises were uh, mutually exchanged between Jews and Palestinians in '47, and recover the prospect of that moment. Or if we think about uh, the world uh, writ large, uh, uh, I think that we have the right to imagine how museums uh, will not function any longer as uh, 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 the uh, laundry for imperial crimes and the same with archives. And uh, how this imperial violence or archival violence that transformed people into undocumented, while so many of their objects, looted objects, are in museums, how to connect between those uh, two things that allegedly belong to different spheres. Because when we speak about objects, we speak about objects that, you know, now acquired very pricey uh, status uh, that are kept in museums, and they are documented in the sense that they were naturalized into the museums. But on the other hand, you have millions of people who are asylum seekers who are being shot in the borders, in U.S.-Mexico border, or uh, let, uh, let be drawn in the Mediterranean when they are coming from their former colonies, and people do not see the connection between both. So when I'm speaking about uh, rights, uh, non-imperial rights, I'm speaking about those objects that are documented in the museum, and we know that these objects were plundered from Nigeria. These objects were plundered from Iraq. These objects were plundered from Afghanistan. These objects are not only precious art objects. These objects are the documents of those people who are made undocumented just in order to continue to drain uh, whatever they had and whatever they could have had. So uh, thinking about them together is a way to think about, for example, restitution, not in the sense of restituting objects back to the countries Mm -hmm. from where they were taken, but restitution in terms of repairing the world in which we can see again those people who are claiming uh, their rights uh, for asylum in certain country to see their claim founded uh, on the basis of the objects, there are objects that are already in those countries. So there is a lot of work to repair the world, and scholarship should also take part in it because the academia was complicit in all these imperial crimes. And I think that we have to be accountable for that and work hard in order to transform these structures. So if you ask me... uh, Am I interested in justice? It goes without saying. And indeed, the university is a, another institution that you can write or one can write a lot about, seeing it in a different, in, in a similar uh, way. Um, uh, Ariela, uh, I wanted to ask you, as a you know, as a means to close this interview, uh, your book again to mention is called "Potential History and Learning Imperialism." Um, given your uh, you know, the vast field that you operate on, you're also uh, uh, do exhibitions, you 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 uh, you do films. Uh, I was wondering if you want to speak a bit about more about your future plans and and how do you see your uh, writing and and other activities evolving uh, after this book. Uh, you know, I worked on this book ten years, and even though it seems like it's already over and uh, uh, it's published, I think that uh, it. Uh, 
puts forward uh, some challenging ideas that myself, I still have to practice them and to see how I can use them in order to continue to challenge uh, those institutions that we were trained as scholars to use as if they are just shrines of knowledge. So my plans are to continue to think uh, and to practice potential history, uh, not necessarily to write a new book on it, but to continue to practice it and to see how it can be uh, uh, used, implemented, and how it can really change some of the foundations of the way that we engage with our uh, professional uh, professional uh, habitus or professional practices. So I think that uh, reparative reparation and repair of the world is necessary. And I hope that the book will help me to think farther about this. And now I'm working, these days yeah. I'm working, I completed one part of a trilogy of films uh, that I call it Undocumented. Uh, the first one is about the objects that were looted from Africa and the Middle East and are held in Europe. Uh, the second part is related to uh, uh, books in which those objects that were looted were naturalized. And the third part focuses on... Uh, museums in the U.S. and how, on the one hand, African-American uh, 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 collected uh, objects from Africa as a form of reparation and how uh, museums in the U.S., uh, their modality to naturalize their violence through objects in museums. So uh, I hope to finish this trilogy in one year or one year and a half. I'm still looking for funding for it. Uh, but this is my project for the coming two years. Right. Ariel, thank you very much for this. Thank you very much for having me in your uh, podcast. <laughs>